Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a series of podcasts helping you produce performance on purpose. For more information, go to our site qedod.com forward slash podcasts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So hi, today we're going to talk to Dr. Michael Pluse, who is a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University. And uh, we're going to talk about some really interesting scientific and research aspects of resilience and really sort of unpack some interesting theories about resilience and see what that adds to the picture about how we manage our own resilience and um, deal with the resilience of others around us. So, Michael, good morning. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. And you, how are you today? Uh, I'm well, really well. How are you? Good, good, good. So, uh, Michael, tell me about yourself. Um, uh, how did you, how did you get to where you are today? Well, I've, I've um, had a, maybe a bit an unusual path into academics. I started out as a lab technician in chemistry, um, and then went on to be a full-time musician for a few years, and then started uh, studying psychology. And um, didn't really know much about research in psychology, but my goal was to become a therapist. And then as I started um, my studies, I've been intrigued by the research aspect of that and got more involved in in research. And then that kind of took me away from the clinical route and um, got me into research. And then I ended up here in London completing a PhD, and now I'm working at Queen Mary University of London. Wow. So I have to, you know, the, the tease of, um, you know, I was a, a professional musician is too great for me to ignore. So what, what sort of music were you involved in? How, how did that hang, come together? Um, I was trained in jazz, but I played, um, I played more modern uh, alternative rock kind of, uh, yeah. I've played all kinds of different styles, but the, the bands I was playing in most were, were kind of modern rock, alternative rock bands. Right. And do you think your music, your your musical background, your musical careers have influenced where you are today? I think so. I think there are lots of parallels of being an academic to being a musician because I'm I'm creating things all day. Um, I'm creating. I'm coming up with ideas. I, I write papers. I publish them. I give talks, which is a bit like giving a concert. Uh, I travel a lot. Um, I always need to find someone to give me money to do what I do. Um, yeah, so there are lots of parallels, but I think the, the, most, impo- the most important parallel is the, the creativity and the independence of, you know, and no one tells me what kind of research I should be doing. It's up to me to identify pressing questions and then to, um, you know, develop research projects that help us to address these questions. And I think another parallel is this idea of um, putting yourself out there. You know, as a musician, you produce something which people criticise. Some people don't yeah. like. Some people don't know why they don't like it. Yeah. And they can be quite assertive about their dislike, as well as the you know the, the absolute you know love for it as well. But how do you deal? How do you deal with those people? How do you deal with negative reviews, as it were? Uh, it doesn't really happen that often to me. Um, it's actually, if you have some people that um, attack your work, it's usually a good sign. 
I would say, because it means that you're challenging some of the pre-existing ideas. Um, so it's not, I, but I, I really haven't had, uh, I ex didn't experience much of that so far. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, in, in the musical world, and I think in academic world, it's the, 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 the biggest problem is indifference rather than strong emotions either way. So it's, it's actually better to be attacked or, validated or you know, agreed with than it is just to be ignored with, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, I guess that's true. So when I when I give a talk and no one has a question at the end of it, yes. it just feels, you know, it leaves you with a feeling of, oh, okay, either this didn't really matter, didn't change anyone's um, take on things, it didn't change anyone's views. But if, so once I gave a talk and, and when I finished, there was an uproar and people got really angry at what I said. Um, but that meant they really engaged with the ideas that I shared, and the ideas that I shared were new and were questioning some of the pre-existing ideas, and that I think that made them angry, but it led to a really good discussion. Mm. So yeah, that's usually a good thing. That's, that's an interesting point, that and anger often is a sign of passion rather than a sign of threat, but it's, it's very hard to differentiate sometimes as a human being, isn't it? Yeah, it can be difficult, yeah. Okay, so you went in psychology and you've ended up uh, as you say, um, where you are today. So, so what got you interested in this specific line of research? Perhaps you should just give us an overview of that research first and then tell us what got you interested in it. Yeah, so most of my research deals with um, a relatively new concept called differential susceptibility, uh, which refers to the idea that some people are more affected by experiences they make than other people. And not just negative experiences, but also positive experiences. And the reason I got into this is because when I was studying in my, uh, I think it was my master's, I was intrigued by protective factors, the idea that there are some things that keep us going even when life is difficult. Um, and I thought back then I want to, rather than just doing more research on what gets people into depression and what, what, is, what are the risk factors that increase the probability of developing psychological problems, I thought I want to understand more about what does the opposite, what are the things that keep people from developing psychological disorders. So these are protective factors, they protect people from adverse influences that may lead other people to develop a psychological problem. Yeah, so when I met uh, Jay Belsky, who uh, ended up being my PhD supervisor, he was based in London at the time, I told him that I'm interested in protective factors and what contributes to people's well-being rather than what contributes to people, uh, you know, being at increased risk to develop psychological problems. And then he told me about uh, whether I've heard of differential susceptibility theory, which I haven't at the time, and then explained to me that according to this theory, which is based on evolutionary thinking, uh, that those people most at risk to develop problems in the face of adversity, they may also be the same people benefiting most from positive experiences. And the reason is because they're more sensitive to both negative and positive environmental influences. Right. Um, and when I heard that, it just, all that I've studied in psychology in my undergraduate and postgraduate courses just made a lot more sense because from an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't make sense that people would have 
risk factors that make them more likely to develop problems in the face of adversity. If there were, for example, genetic factors that increase the risk for depression, then we would expect that over time those genetic factors would drop out of the gene pool. But the fact that they are in the gene pool and at high frequency suggests they must have some benefit as well. Right. Okay. So let me let me unpack a little bit of what you're saying. Just to, so so first of all, the psychological problems you mentioned depression. Might there be other psychological problems? Yeah, I just mentioned depression as an example of yeah. one one that is uh, most likely uh, a result of the experiences that people make. Like the other problems, like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, which are, have a much stronger biological. Yes. Uh, and you mentioned, and you mentioned um, that linked to something like a general anxiety disorder as well, for example. Yeah, general anxiety disorder, anxiety disorder as well. They're, they're closely linked to depression often. Okay. So, and then you talked a little bit about um, sensitivity. So, yes. so, so tell me a little bit more about what you mean by sensitivity. So, sensitivity is a um, the different conceptualizations of sensitivity. I refer to it usually as the ability to register and process external stimuli. So our ability, to, that's a very fundamental ability, it's necessary for our survival. We all have that ability to perceive our, our environment right. um, through all our different you know, senses and to process that information so that we can understand the environment and we can respond to the environment. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would call. That's what I usually call uh, environmental sensitivity. And is that is that the sort of? I mean, we talk about this idea of the limbic system. Is that where this is? Was that where this is taking place? In your theory, how, how does that work? Um, yeah. So the, there is some research on the, the on brain functions and structures associated with that. Um, um, I don't think we have a very clear picture of that yet, but the, yeah, so the limbic system would be involved, so the amygdala is involved. Usually the amygdala has been associated with the fight or flight reaction, yes. but actually there is quite a bit of research suggesting that the amygdala is also very responsive to positive um, experiences. So the amygdala seems to be a uh, part of the brain that is associated with that sensitivity rather than just threats. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 when you talk about positive experience, um, I mean, the the threats thing is well understood, and that links well with risk. But what do you mean by positive things? And so, so positive things, um, you know, are all experiences that um, benefit our survival, benefit. Um, from an evolution perspective, reproduction. Right. Um, so it could be, you know, things like social support, um, but also, you know, intervention, psychological intervention, a caring parenting environment, um, things like that. So feelings of security, nurturing, and, yeah. all, and all that good stuff. So what you're saying is when you're parenting someone, um, it's important to give those sorts of experiences. And if you're managing leading someone, I suppose you need to build on those sorts of experiences because that has a, a correlation or maybe a link, certainly, with how that person will operate because of their degree of risk or sh exposure to risk, perhaps? Yeah, so parenting is, is known as one of the 
most important, the early family environment is known as one of the most important factors for development. But we found in our studies that were based on a, a framework of differential susceptibility that some children, those that are more sensitive, they're more affected, even they're more affected by the positive parenting than those that are less sensitive. Right. And this, and this is your idea of the genetic causal issue here, is it? That has a genetic component, yes. So a lot of my research uh, in, involves genetics. So we look at specific genes and then in different people and then see whether those genes predict different responses to the environment. So if you have a child that seems to be unduly or more sensitive, if, let's say you have two or three children yeah. and one seems to be more, more sensitive than the others, yeah. then a different parental style is required to either give them more positive experiences because they'll respond more positively and to avoid more negative. Is that what you're saying? Yes, usually the more sensitive children, they, they require less punishment because they're more, they respond more quickly to it. I see. Uh, they're more strongly affected by that uh, and they may need a bit more, a bit more care. Um, and, how, and how do you spot a sensitive child? Because I, I suppose I have a view, but what, 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 how, would you, how would you suggest that we spot one, other than just one that cries a lot, for example? Well, a child that is um, often a, a child that likes routine, that likes the the comfort and, and security of routine. Uh, often these children are fairly conscientious. Um, they are cautious in new situations. Right. They're not necessarily shy, but it might just take them longer to adapt to new situations. So they they're easily overwhelmed. In a very loud environment, they may startle more easily if there is a loud noise. They, they are more affected by violence that they would watch on TV. Right. Um, so these are, the, are a few things. And so that can very easily carry on into adulthood, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's a personality trait. So most personality traits will change a little bit over the life course, but there's a substantial stability there. So, so I'm, I'm currently allocating many, many problems to having this sensitivity thing, um, but I'm guessing that you would say there are many benefits to it as well. Yeah, so one of the big changes in the last few years that has been, um, that's the, maybe, that's where differential susceptibility plays an important role is because those, those traits of sensitivity have been viewed as risk factors. They have been used as those factors. If you have those, then you're at higher risk of depression if you experience, you know, negative experiences early in life or in adulthood. Um, so they have been viewed as as negative um, characteristics that you shouldn't have because it increases the risk to develop problems. Right. Uh, and the same is true for the genes associated with those traits. Um, and what we have been able to show is that actually those people that have those traits that are more sensitive, that seem to be more affected by negative experiences, they do have the benefit that they do better than other people in positive and more supportive environments. Right. So the people that perform the best that, or have the, the best mental health in a very supportive environment are exactly the same people that seem to be the most severely affected by uh, maltreatments and other adversities. 
I see. Right. So if I were managing someone or leading someone, I had someone in my team who was more sensitive, yeah. I basically want to use a lot more positive feedback, positive reinforcement, um, because they're much more likely to respond to that. But any mild criticism or even um, implied um, criticism could have a, um, an unduly negative effect on their performance. Then. That is true, yes. So the... Um the high, so this is referred to in the literature also that the books on high sensitive personality, yeah. um, which is similar to differential susceptibility, it's, but it's it's um, it's more in the popular psychology domain, and and there are quite a few books out there, and some are based on research and some are not. Yeah, um, but the ones that are based on research, they're uh, authored by. Um, by Dr. Elaine Aaron, who's a psychotherapist from the States, and she developed, she developed um, this questionnaire called the Highly Sensitive Person Scale. Um, she has written quite a few books on, uh, um, more, more about from the perspective of being a highly sensitive person and how you should, uh, how that might affect your relationships, uh, the parenting, that, uh, and so forth. Um, but I think it has not been Probably in the business world, it, it, it hasn't made an entry yet, but it, I think it's fairly significant because mm. obviously if you have a team and people differ in their sensitivity, just as, you know, as, as a parent and you have lots of, you know, you have different children with different sensitivity, um, they need different treatments and you want to get the best out of each of them. Mm. And for the more sensitive, they may require... Um, a different different way of, of how you manage them because they will tend to be highly conscientious so they will be fairly sensitive to negative feedback so they, they need less negative feedback to get the same effect and I'm guessing a more positive a more positive team climate in which to work yes absolutely yes they, so, they will be they, the, 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 the more sensitive people they will pick up more on the mood in a team and how other people feel and, and, and that can affect them. So they have a lot of skill. Yes. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of, more likely to have emotional intelligence. Yes. And so they, it is, they can make a very, very valuable contribution. A lot of people that are scoring high on the sensitivity trait end up being counsellors, they end up being artists. People are a bit more in tune with um, what happens, um, you know, in the emotional domain? I see. More interesting. That's interesting. So, um, um, you get, I've got now about eighty-three and a half thousand questions to ask you. So I'm getting oh. very interested in this. Um, so, with the emotional intelligence thing, we often say though that people can have very high self-awareness, which is what you're pointing to with sensitivity. But it doesn't necessarily mean they can manage themselves well. You can have the awareness without the strategies to deal with that. I guess. Yes, that's true. Is 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 therefore sensitivity more about the awareness side of it, and so people will need the toolkits to be able to say, well, now I'm aware of my state uh, or style or whatever it might be. A useful thing to have now would be a, a strategy to say, well, if I'm you know I'm facing conflict, do I need to know what to do with that? Otherwise, they can just sort of close down and fail to operate, for example. Yeah, my experience is that people that are clearly uh, more sensitive than others, they're usually aware of the negative 
aspects of that. Right. This the sense that they have that they're easily overwhelmed when in social situations, so they get really tired when being with lots of other people. Yeah. Um, so they or they they find that they often reflect a long time on things before they make a decision. Mm-hmm. So they see all the negative things about that, and maybe other people, you know perceive the same difficulties. So I often find that it's really important to help people that are highly sensitive to um, to help them see the benefits of that trait and because they take that for granted. They're not aware. They, they think everyone is able to empathize how they are. Right. So everyone is able to register all the information that they are able to perceive from the environment. Uh, so it, it's helpful to, to help them to see the traits, the 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 valuable contribution that they can make um, based on their personality structure. Yes, I'm guessing. Yeah, as you were saying before, there's interest in these sorts of uh, job roles. There's the more intuitive side of the life. So even in uh, so so that nurturing. I mean, you talked about psychotherapy and counselling and musicians and such like. But I'm guessing people who are more creative could be more sensitive because they're. They're better used to re- reading people's signs and signatures, so they could be really useful in marketing, for example, to getting under the surface of focus groups and, and being able to use yeah. their intuition more. Yeah, as soon as it has to do with understanding the situation, right. understanding how people how people respond, what might happen in people, a sensitive person is 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 ideal to do that. I mean, on the, on the other end, on the other extreme, people that are low in their sensitivity, they may not have an appreciation and they may just not pick up on things that others, others do. And that in itself has advantages. So if you have a team of people, you want to make sure that you give those tasks to the more sensitive ones that are you know, more suited to or require that, that level of sensitivity and, and maybe other other tasks are better done by someone who's less affected by their environment. I see. So, so say you have someone who um, um, I haven't asked you the, that question first, but say you have someone who re- recognizes their level of sensitivity to be not useful for them in the real world. Is there a way of being able to? Um, well, one way is, I suppose, is to take itself away from that situation in which they find themselves. But there is a way of being. Is there a way of being able to? Um, Lessen sensitivity then in that case, so they can they can, they can deal with the effects of oversensitivity. Yeah, so in, in the end, it's all about regulating yourself, and we all have to regulate our emotions, our behaviours, right. our responses, and that that's you know a child is not able to do that. A child acquires the self-regulation over time, and uh, if if someone had a, a good upbringing. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean just a good family, but maybe a lot of support then, and, and good examples. Then we, we acquire um, good skills to regulate ourselves. And, and someone that's more sensitive just has to get better at regulating uh, that sensitivity. And there's some very practical things. So uh, often I find in the people that I know that are highly sensitive, if they're in a large group of people, you know, it could be a party, it could be uh, work, that at times they need to go away and have some time to themselves because they feel overstimulated. So it's it's about knowing when you need to withdraw 
And it's, it's having a sense of how long you can be in a certain situation and perform really well before you need to have a break. Yes. Um, often sensitive people would also, in, in the work environment, would probably more likely benefit from having an office to themselves because they're easily distracted by noise. Whereas other people, they function well in an open plan office. But that's, that's again, something where I feel in the business world, this has completely been ignored, the fact that people differ in how they function in their environment. And it's assumed that everyone will do fairly well in an open plan office. Yes. Uh, but uh, the, diff the fact that there are different degrees of sensitivity suggests that for some people, actually, this is not a great environment and they will perform less well. Now, that, that is fascinating because I have run into a person, a very bright person, uh, who worked in an organisation we were uh, working around, who was so sensitive to external noise, even to someone chewing yeah. in, in the office. And, of course, she was finding it really difficult to persuade people that A, she wasn't mad or making it up or just, you know, just pulling someone's leg. But what you're saying is that's a legitimate byproduct of being overly sensitive. Absolutely, yes. Wow, that, that, now that is, I, I shall be ringing her up later and telling her that's, that's she's quite normal. <laughs> well, there is actually some work that uh, shows that there is a, um, a gene that uh, predicts whether some people are disturbed by chewing noises or not. Good Lord, is it? There's actually a genetic component to that. Uh, I've, I'm, normally, I usually write a couple of notes. I'm on to my 18th um, post-it post at the moment. Post-it notes at the moment for things that. Now, let's just let's just rewind a little bit for me, um, yeah. because I was I'm very interested in some sort of measure of sensitivity. Now, you mentioned an author, Elaine. Somebody, Elaine. Elaine Aaron. Aaron. Okay. A R O N. She has a website. Uh, her website is HS person for high sensitive person. Now, do you have your own measure of sensitivity, or is that something you're thinking of developing? Or we have a measure. So she did uh, create a measure with 27 questions, and we um, are working on many uh, measures based on that. So we created a shorter version with 12 questions, right. and we have that for children and for adults. And we're right now developing a, um, a measure for younger children. So this is, not this is not based on questions, but it's based on observation. Right. But she does, Elena on her website has a checklist where people can just say yes or no um, to a range of questions, and that indicates to some degree how sensitive someone is. But most people that are sensitive, they will know that they are. And when they hear the description, they will immediately say, yeah, that's me. Okay. We, um, outside of this podcast, we'll have a, a conversation about that measure for younger children, because that might be interesting. Um, now, just to bring it into sort of focus now, then, um, you're very clear in terms of how you link sensitivity to resilience. And I know you alluded to it earlier, but how, how, do, you, how do you link those, these two ideas together? Well, in multiple ways. So resilience is often usually considered a good thing uh, because it means you're less affected by negative experiences and, and we all want that. We want to be less affected by negative experiences. We want to be protected. We want to be strong in the face of adversity. Well, the whole literature on sensitivity and th this model of differential susceptibility, there are other models um, that are very similar, suggest that yes, people define how they respond to the environment. And, but whether something 
whether that's good or bad really depends on the environment. So being resilient is a good thing, or being if it's a function of being less sensitive, that's a good thing in the face of adversity. So if you experience um, torture, if you experience a war, if you experience maltreatment as a child, it's a good thing to be less sensitive because yes. those traumatic experiences will not have as strong an effect on you than it would have on other people. So, so that's a good thing. So that would, that would explain by, why you have evidence that say the Ceausescu babies, some of them are okay, some of them have thrived and some of them have you know, really not maximized their life chances in many cases you know, have lived you know, very poor lives. And you're yeah. saying that's because of their, their individual levels of sensitivity. Yeah, so I, I think at this point it's important to clarify that sensitivity is not explaining everything. It's just right. one, it's one component of many components. But we have to consider, when we talk about human behavior, we have to consider multiple levels of analysis. So we, we have to consider genetic factors. We have to consider personality factors. So factors of the individual, but we also have to consider factors of the environment. And the environment is our immediate social environment, our physical environment, but also the, the services available to us, the cultural factors that influence us. So we have to consider all of those, and they all have an influence. And the degree of exposure to adversity also obviously has, has an influence. But when we look at sensitivity, then in the face of adversity, uh, a low degree of sensitivity would be an advantage. Yes. Because it would help us to be protected from the negative effects yes. uh, those negative experiences have on us. However, if everything is good and we're in a particularly supportive environment with lots of opportunities, then having a high degree of sensitivity is an advantage. Yes. And actually, uh, being low in sensitivity would be a disadvantage. Yes, I see. Yeah. It's actually quite challenging for a workplace because uh, a manager or a leader with low sensitivity will probably manage in a way that suits other people who have low sensitivity and vice versa, perhaps. I would predict uh, that managers with a high degree of sensitivity are probably better managers because right. they will understand uh, people better and they will have this intuitive sense of what is important for this person, what would be important for the other person. Yes, that's interesting because you do see certain, and it's, it's, easy to, it's very easy to um, leap to conclusions here, but you do see certain types of people that thrive in certain sorts of organisations. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting to be able to sort of cast a sensitivity light on that. Yeah, at one level, that's fascinating. Um, so, where where is the research going, Michael? Where where's next for your for your in your thinking for this? So there, there's there's so much research in this area because it's a fairly new concept. It's it's not completely new because we've we have known that people differ in their sensitivity, but we have used different terminology. So people have been using you know extroversion, introversion. Yes. Um, to and that often reflects some of those personality differences. So, so introverted people, that's often a reflection of sensitivity because they feel overwhelmed. Yes. Uh, so they need less stimulation, um, but it's not the same. So that uh, there's there are you know there's a 
proportion of about 30% of extroverted people that are sensitive, highly sensitive. Yes. So introversion and, and sensitivity is not the same, but it is correlated. Yes. I think we do have a lot of research, particularly from the field of resilience, that people differ in their sensitivity to adverse experiences. Yes, that makes sense. And we don't have very much yet on how people differ in response to positive experiences. Right. So we developed a concept um, in the last few years, and we call this Vantage Sensitivity. And it refers to individual differences in response to positive experiences, and that the idea that people differ in their positive response to positive experiences as a function of inherent traits. So these are personality traits. These are genetic factors. Um, so we're running studies where we try to see whether more sensitive people are more benefit more from psychological intervention. Um, uh, many of these interventions we have been looking at so far are actually uh, preventative interventions so rather than a treatment. And we find consistently, so we found, found in a study that we published last year, uh, that was at a, at a girls' school in London, we found that only the, those scoring high in sensitivity, the top 25% of all those children at the school benefited from an intervention. And those that were low in their sensitivity didn't respond at all. Uh, we found something similar in an anti-bullying intervention in Italy. Wow. Uh, only those that were highly sensitive actually benefited from the intervention. Um, and we also found something similar with young offenders in Los Angeles, where we found that those that are highly sensitive and young offenders, they are less likely to re-offend if they uh, are in a more supportive, more positive environment. Right. Um, uh, so we, we find consistently that more sensitive people are benefiting more from positive experiences, but in comparison to the whole literature on resilience, so sensitivity to negative experiences, there is not that much research yet. And the implications are massive. Yes. Because right now, interventions are evaluated based on mean effects. Yeah. So you take the effect that an intervention has on a whole group of people, you, you average that effect across all people, and then you interpret that um, you would find that effect in, in all people, but that's not what we find. We find that some people show much stronger effects and other people don't show any effects. And the implication of that is that we need to be able to identify those that benefit most from the intervention and give them those interventions. And for those that don't seem to benefit, we need to find different interventions for them. So, so that, that's absolutely fascinating. So... Um, in my branch of psychology, we're all over mindfulness and that yeah. sort of world at the moment. So that will. So what you're saying is, there are people who regularly tell me that has not that has no value for me at all. Well, yeah. actually, if they if they have a lower sensitivity, then it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. I have. I'm not aware of research that looked at sensitivity and mindfulness, but yeah. um, I would suspect that that's the case. Yes. Yes. That's interesting. And so you could argue people with lower sensitivity would get less value from mindfulness and, and such like, but actually maybe that's what they maybe that's what they need to build. You're not going to build sensitivity, but you are sort of able to 
to, to some gets you'll begin to get some positive effects from the process, but less than a sensitive person or a person with higher yes. sensitivity. Yeah, I get it. Yes, I would expect that. I, I think the more sensitive people are more likely to to benefit from certain intervention or certain practices. Yes, and for other people, it just doesn't it doesn't do it for them. It's it's a bit like if you take a whole group to a concert, let's say a classical concert, um, or it could be a museum looking at paintings and art, yes. you, would, you will find that the more sensitive people will be able to get a lot out of this, yes. and the less sensitive it would just not that much. Would, they, they would feel bored or they would not want to do much of that. Are you, so are you, and I don't know if you're saying this or not, but are you saying then therefore that less sensitive people shouldn't bother with those sorts of experiences? Or they should, but just to recognise there will be less impact coming coming from it. I think the self awareness about your own sensitivity is beneficial, regardless of whether you're high or low sensitive. It just means that it may help you to understand other people better if you know your own sensitivity and understand that other people may just have more or less sensitivity, and that's why they respond differently. Right. And that's maybe why you have to deal with them in a different way as well. Uh, a less sensitive person might, you know, might be okay with, with harsh treatment without being offended. Um, a more sensitive person might be quickly, uh, you know, yes. just be, be more sensitive and be more affected by, by, by uh, you know, harsh treatments and so forth. Wow, well... Michael, I'm conscious of time rolling on and um, I'm grabbing slightly more of your time than I promised. But um, um, how, if, someone, if someone would like to read more about your research and, and your thinking, what's the best thing for them to do to engage with you? Um, most of, all, obviously all of my research uh, I publish so, and all my publications are available on my website. My website is www.michaelplus.com. And we'll link to that website from our show notes as well, so we can, um, so people can engage with you and find out more. Um, Michael, it's been absolutely fascinating. I've learned so much today myself, and I have a list of tasks to go away and do personally, and um, and one of which is to talk to you more about the subject, if I may. And um, all I'd like to do is thank you very much for your time today, and um, and say I'll be following your research with m more than a passing degree of interest. I think it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Resilience Unraveled helps you create performance on purpose. And you can find out more about us and resilience at qedod.com forward slash resilience. Or listen to more of our podcasts. You can also find out more about our courses, our webinars, and free resources like ebooks and paid for courses at qedod.com. Otherwise, we hope you can enjoy more of our podcasts in the future.